You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. I was about four, maybe five years old. We were sitting at the dinner table. I I don't know, like all of you, this is no guilt trip coming because I uh, still struggle with my family sometimes to pull dinner together and get everybody there. But when I was a kid, we ate almost every dinner together. And my dad looked at me at this moment, and I think this is the first time this ever happened, and he said, Matt, would you pray for our meal? So I decided I was going to dig into the only one of a couple prayers that I knew, and I figured the, uh, the prayer that I was taught as a kid to pray, that terrifying prayer before you go to sleep, the now I lay me down to sleep, pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. I don't know who thought that was a great idea to teach a kid, like, is there a chance that's gonna happen, mommy? Just go to sleep, son. It'll be great. Well, I decided that probably wasn't the right prayer for this moment, but I didn't know what the right prayer was. I was four or five years old, whatever it was. And so I decided to pray this prayer, and it went like this. Our Father, who aren't in heaven, <laughs> be thy name. And some of you are laughing because you've heard this prayer before. I grew up with a little bit of Catholic on one side of my family and a little bit of Protestant on the other side. And so we prayed the King James kind of version of what's called the Our Father. Now, I am a huge fan of parents teaching their kids rote prayers when they're especially four or five years old, aren't able to think for yourself, pray for yourself. I'm a huge fan, huge fan of that. However, in this moment, uh, there was this chuckling that went out around the entire dinner table. My family started to chuckle. I didn't know what I did wrong, uh, but I figured something was off. So we get done with the prayer. My dad looks at me and he says, Matt, uh, where do you think God is? And I said, I don't know where God is. You tell me. You're the one who's taught me to pray that he's not in heaven. And they said, well, what, what did you say again? I said, our father who aren't in heaven. They all started chuckling again. Now, for those of you who know the real word, the real word is Art. I don't know why God likes art versus band or science or math. I don't have any idea what that means. The word art, I guess, means something like is, our father who is in heaven. But when you're four or five years old, you only know what you've been taught, which is apparently God's not there. Apparently he's somewhere else. He's on vacation. So then I get to the hallowed part. I have no idea what it means. So here's the thing. Like everybody learns to pray somewhere, somehow. I thank God I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up with Christian parents. My dad was an elder in our church. I'm so thankful, so thankful that I was raised in this way. So I was taught to pray and even scary prayers like, you know, not waking up and whatever it is. But I'm so glad I was taught. But see, you may not have had that blessing. Maybe you were raised in a different church or in a different context or had no religion in your family at all. Or maybe you weren't raised uh, as a Christian even. So you're trying to figure this out. But did you know everybody at some point has trying to figure out how to pray? And most Christians I know struggle to figure out prayer. What do I do? How do I do it? When do I do it? What do I say? What's the right approach? Even Jesus' disciples had these same kinds of questions. So much so that they actually come to Jesus at one point and say, like, teach us how to pray, master. And he tells them basically what we now call the Our Father. It shows up in a couple different passages, which means Jesus used it enough. It shows up in Matthew chapter 6 in what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is kind of like Jesus saying, in the ideal kingdom, in the paradise that will be, in heaven when it's all uh, kind of come about, this is what life will look like. And this is how people will act when they're acting in a way that's righteous. And part of that is this out of Matthew 6. So what we're going to do now, if you feel so led to join Join me in this as we're going to read it together. It's going to be on the screen in Matthew chapter 6. Uh, we're reading verses thir- 9 through 13. If you have like your own Bible and want to read out there, that's fine. But we're all going to do the NIV together so that we're all using the same words. There's no art in this version. There is a hallowed, but we'll talk about all that in a minute. So we're just going to read it together. Ready? Here we go. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. 
This then, can we join me, ready? Here we go. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And some of you Protestants in the room are dying to say more. And all the Catholics in the room are going, say more what? And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because most Protestants, when you were raised, were taught to also say, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And that's not in Matthew chapter 6. You're like, well, why is your Bible broken, Pastor? Well, nobody cares, right? But you could probably Wikipedia or Google this later. I'll give you the short version. I didn't Wikipedia it, so I'm assuming it's there. But the short version is this. So that prayer comes out of, I can't remember if it's First or Second Chronicles, right around chapter 24, almost as exact words are used. We believe the first church, the early church used it because right around 90 AD, uh, there's something called the Didache. It was a, a teaching of Christian teachings, like here's what we practice in these situations. Here's how baptism is done, blah, blah, blah. It's not scripture, but that is added to that prayer. There are two major translations where we pull the, from the Greek and the Hebrew, uh, two major translations, and I won't go into all the bore you all of them, but the major one that we use that we lean upon for our versions, English versions today, doesn't have that. The other version does have it. So there you go. In a nutshell, if you use it, great. If you don't use it, great. Doesn't matter. You can be Catholic, Protestant all day long. The Protestant reformers, Calvin and Luther, when they came along, they added it in, make sure everybody used it. It was uh, one of those demarcating lines they put in there. Part of me goes, I don't really care, one way or the other. But Jesus didn't use it in Matthew 6, and the versions that we have today, so that's the end of that discussion. Now, moving on, what does it mean to actually pray? Well, virtually every major world religion prays. And so many of you, not even knowing it, you quote all kinds of non-Christian scholars, theologians, pastors, whatever you want to call them, on a regular basis. How do I know? Because they pop up on my Facebook wall. And you put all kinds of really well-sounding quotes out there that have no basis in Scripture. They may be good, they may be wise, but they don't have a foundation of Scripture. And they'll focus a lot on meditating, on quiet space, on creating margin in your life, and all those things are things I would teach on. But prayer is unique. Prayer as a Christian really has a profound power to it, which is actually the fourth week in this series. But its power comes from everything Jesus just told us in this prayer. Here's how I would summarize the entire message. If you get nothing else, get this. Ready? The purpose of prayer is to give perspective to all of life. Now, some of you who are critical thinkers or love to debate, you're already figuring out the ways that I'm wrong. Oh, no, 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 pastor, you're missing it. It's about intimacy. It's about, it's about getting what you need. I just want you to listen to me for 30 minutes, and then you can write anything you want, and I'll send it on to another staff member to deal with. Um, I'm joking, I'm joking. So the reason I believe this is because I think this is exactly what Jesus just told us in Matthew chapter 6. And here's the thing. No matter what family you were raised in, what church experience you had growing up, no matter what those things, or maybe it was none of those things, the thing is this. Everybody has to start somewhere. What Jesus just told us is, I'm telling you where to start. Start here. This prayer was never intended by Jesus for us to pray over and over and over again and for that to be our prayer. It was intended to be a model. Teach us how to pray. Jesus said, okay, here's how you pray. It wasn't intended to be, here's exactly what you pray. It's an outline, for lack of a better phrase. That doesn't mean it's bad. I'm glad I was taught this prayer. I'm glad many of you were taught this prayer. 
However, it's an outline. And when we understand it as an outline, now we can pray the outline back to our heavenly father. So here we go. Let's dig through this for a second. Let's just look <clears throat> at what Jesus tells us. So first of all, we can't get past the first word before we get perspective on prayer, the very first perspective. Because it's not my father. It's our father. One of the disservices guys like me did to the church for decades, and I was part of so When I was growing up as a kid, I was told this. When I started teaching, when I first started teaching, and between like 18 and 25 years old, I did this all the time. And it feels really good because in America, we are so full of ourselves. We really are. Man, we love selfies. I've had people come up to me all day and go, Pastor, you're wearing a tie. Can I get a selfie with you? I'm like, yes. For a $500 a piece, make the check payable to, I'm just kidding. Um, We love to take pictures of ourselves. We love to talk about ourselves. We love to put it out there. So here's what pastors, guys like me would say when many of you were growing up. If you were the only person in all of history to receive Jesus, he still would have what? Died for you. A bunch of you were like, yep, I know exactly where you're going. That's what I was told over and over and over again. I had an overinflated view of self. By the time I got done with high school, I was like, I am somebody Jesus thought, I'm so important, Jesus died for me. Okay, well, there's a truth in that, right? Jesus did die for you. But Jesus never died just for you. In fact, by the time you popped up on the scene, there have already been millions of them. Jesus makes clear in John chapter 15 and 16 that he was dying for his disciples, who he now calls friends. He's got a whole bunch of people in mind. He was always creating a family, a second family called the church. He was never thinking of just one person saying, I'm going to die just for them and only for them because they're the only one. No, it was always a group of people. So Jesus tells us when you pray, realize this is not just about me and my, which is critical, by the way, for where we're about to go. Because by the time we get to the end of this bad boy, you're going to be like, man, there's a whole bunch of hour going on. But if you don't realize that, then prayer for you becomes me getting what I want from God. And so, God, I need you to change this person. God, I need you to change their mind. God, I need you to do this thing. And God, would you take care of this? Well, what if giving you everything you're asking for is actually hurting everybody else in the world who's a part of the hour? So I can't come to my Heavenly Father until my perspective changes and I realize prayer is not just about me and what I want. Prayer is about us and what God is doing. But then I get to the very next word, my whole world gets rocked because I find out that he's not an angry boss. He's not a husband or a wife. He's a father. And see, for some of you, that word may carry a ton of baggage because your daddy here on earth, maybe he was too busy for you or angry or addicted. And so your view of God as a father is warped because of that. But see, God isn't like your earthly dad. He is a perfect heavenly father. Earlier this year in my, my men's group that just concluded, uh, we, we were sharing one day and one particular gentleman was sharing that he, he kind of felt like God was calling him out to maybe stop being so lazy at work, like he maybe wasn't giving his best. And I made this statement. I said, you know what's really cool about God is he is the perfect boss. I really wish I would have gone back and redone that whole statement. I wish I would have said he's the perfect father. I said, because here's the thing. When you're lazy, he'll whoop you, man. He'll be like, hey, stop being lazy. I've given you this great job. Go work hard at it. But when you're overworking, he'll be the first one to say, you need to stop working so hard to go home. You need to take care of yourself. And when you are uh, engaging too much in other things that aren't your family, he'll be the first one to say, hey, go spend some time with your family. When you're giving too much to your family and you're not fulfilling your other responsibilities and roles that he's given you, he'll be the first one to say, hey, go do this. And when you have sinned against him, he'll be the first one to say, draw near to me. I want to forgive you. But when you need to forgive somebody else, he's the one who gives you the strength and the courage and the grace to go and forgive them. He really is a good, good father. It's who he is. That's who he is, and we're loved by him. Sorry. Somebody should write a song using those words. Anyway, 
Hey, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. It's a song. Anyway, so somebody did it. The point here is he is a perfect father. Yesterday, it was a Saturday afternoon, and um, my little boy, one of them came up to me. I have three little boys, and one of them came up to me and said, Daddy, can you go in the backyard and play the ball game with us? Now, the ball game is a game we made up. I've talked about it before, but I looked at him. I said, yeah, buddy, let's go do that. And I said, well, no, wait, 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 wait. He said, what? I said, well, the back door is like literally falling off. The wood had split. I noticed a couple days ago. I'm like, why won't this door shed? Well, the boys go in and out so hard, so fast, just split the wood in half. I was like, I just need to fix that. It's going to fall off these days and kill one of you, and that's bad for me. So uh, your mom won't be happy with me. So I need to fix that real quick. And I have a shower. I'm going to go upstairs, take a shower. And uh, it's one of those days. And uh, I'm going to change clothes or brush my teeth. And I'm going to make a quick phone call. Somebody's buying something, something later today. I'm going to do this thing. And, and he looks at me and goes, that just seems like it's going to take forever, Dad. And I was like, oh, it won't be that. It'd be like a half hour. Don't worry about it. Oh, I'll let you play Xbox. Xbox, cool. We don't want to be with dad anymore. So then they're off playing Xbox. And I realized, man, I am not at all like a good representation of my heavenly father. God literally is engaged with you at any moment. Any moment. Any moment you want to talk, any moment you need to talk. James encourages us. All we need to do is draw near to God, and he will draw near to us. James chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Take a look sometime. It's such a powerful thing because the creator of the entire universe is ready and available because he is a father. The word used here for father is actually the word Abba. It's the same word in the garden where Jesus draws into the presence of God. He doesn't want to go to the cross. He doesn't want to die. And he says, Abba, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. And the word Abba, there's really no great way of kind of defining it, but this is as close as we can get. It's a name used by children for their earthly dads. It denotes warmth and intimacy and the security of a loving father's care. Imagine the big, powerful arms of the strongest, biggest man you could think of but the kindest, most gentle, tender person you've ever met. And you're climbing up in his lap with his big, powerful arms, but all of the presence and tenderness and care you need in that moment. He said, come on up. I always have time for you. But here's the thing. He is in heaven. You're not. You're on earth. He's not. He's in heaven. And that's a good thing because he's where you want to be. And what we learn in scripture is uh, there in heaven, when we all get there one day, there'll be no more crying and no more tears and no more pain and no more suffering. That's where I want to be. I don't know about you. Where do you want to go when you die? I want to go to heaven. I don't want to be reborn. I don't believe you are, but I don't want to be a Hindu. I don't want to die and live a really good life here and come back and get to live a better life because I've met some really, really, really wealthy people who have a lot of earthly blessings and many of them are miserable. I don't want to be here. I just read a great quote I'm going to use later by Will Smith who said basically he's made all the money, he's had all the sex he wanted, and it didn't make him any happier. Exactly. I want to go to heaven where I'm actually going to be fully, completely happy and fulfilled in every possible way. I don't want to come back here. That's where he is. So what is that doing for us? It's giving us perspective, perspective on life. This is why the writer of Hebrews tells us, fix your eyes on the author and the perfecter of our faith who scorned shame and endured the cross. So see, 
The Bible's constantly calling us, stop looking at earth. Stop focusing on your problems. Stop focusing on your frustration. Stop focusing on other people. Stop focusing on your pain. Stop focusing on all these things. Lift your eyes. In fact, in the Old Testament, they would often look to the mountains because God was higher than the mountains. And the creator would say, um, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from you, maker of heaven and earth. They're lifting their eyes above their situation, above their problems and their pain. Our Father in heaven, we won't take this long on all of them or we'll never finish today's message. But notice the very next line is, hallowed be your name. The word hallowed, some translations put it today, holy is your name. The whole idea here is other than. The word holy in Greek is hagias. In Hebrew, it's kadosh. The whole idea here is this. God is different, set apart other than us. And his name is different, set apart other than our names and any other name under heaven. In fact, Acts makes clear to us, there is no other name under heaven whereby we can be saved. Not Buddha, not Trump, not your boss, not your parents, not anybody else. There's one name under heaven whereby we we can be saved, and it's the name of Jesus. And we're told there's power in the name, so much so that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, so much so that at his name, even the demons must flee. There is power, profound power. You can clap for God, yeah. But what Jesus is building on here is on those first few of the Ten Commandments where we are told not to make light of his name. Now, we know the literal name that God gave himself was Yahweh in the Old Testament or something similar to that. That's like the best we could do to understanding what God said. But it's bigger than that. We were never intended to take specifically that name and just never say it, which is what the Hebrew people did. The point was to give great honor and respect where honor and respect were due. And we live in a culture today that doesn't really understand honor and respect very well. Holy is your name. Yesterday, as we finally got outside to play, some neighbor kids had some friends over. Uh, They were behind some bushes, so we couldn't actually see them, but we heard lots that they were saying. God and Jesus just kind of flippantly. I mean, they weren't throwing around Yahweh, so I guess technically they weren't disobeying the Ten Commandments. I don't even, I mean, they're the neighbor kids. I don't even know if they know Jesus. I, I don't, when I say I don't care, I care deeply about them, but it, it didn't bother me, but it really set my kids off because they're younger and they're trying to live out the life we're teaching them to live. And they're looking at me, Dad, do you hear some of the words they're saying? I'm like, yes, I hear them. Why are they saying that? I don't know. We live in a culture, I hear Christians all the time say these things. And we don't realize we're making light instead of holy the name of God, even the concept of God. We don't even utter God in our own language. I'm not trying to add legalism to your faith. I'm trying to say we want to have such honor and respect for the majesty of God. The concept of who he is, is your life reflecting that holiness? See, it's about perspective. I run into his presence and he's big and strong and tender and I climb up in his lap, but do I do do it in such a way that's flippant? Hey, God, what's up, Big G? How you doing, my man? Hey, I'm a hurry, but uh, I need you to take care of these things. I'll see you later. Talk to you when I need you again. Or do I come into that moment? Again, I don't mean fake, like, you know, oh, heavenly Father, creator of God above. Like, I mean, don't overdo it. Be real, right? But at the same time, is there awe? Is there awe of who it is I'm talking to and what's happening in this moment? The creator of everything, 
is listening to me. He's big. He's awesome. I want to come in with the right heart and the right attitude. But then notice my perspective now. So we've been focusing on who he is, but now my perspective for daily living and my daily needs starts to become real. Because the first thing Jesus says then is now once we got a perspective of who we're talking to, then I say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, so the reason this is powerful is we're really bad at this. Most of us are busy building what we call fiefdoms. I don't know if you know what a fiefdom is. You can Google it later. But essentially, a fiefdom is my kingdom, my thing. So the reason we can't start with my father who is in heaven, I have to start with our father, is because it's not my kingdom. I'm not building my thing. I'm building, I'm taking part in whatever it is he's building, his kingdom, his thing. And there's a lot of great kingdom passages in the New Testament to tell me what his kingdom is like and what God is trying to do in his kingdom. But the reason I say your kingdom come, your will be done, it's like I'm joining with Jesus in his prayer in the garden. When Jesus is about to go to the cross and he says, take this cup from me, but not my will be done, your will be done. And after he prays that and prays that and prays that, finally Jesus stops asking. You notice that? Okay, if this is the only way, Father, then let's do this. Give me the strength to fulfill your will. And that is about perspective. Because if I come to prayer with God, and I believe prayer with God is about battling with God and asking over and over and over again or louder and better ways so that he has to do what I'm telling him to do. And by the way, I do this all the time. I make suggestions to God. God, I need you to fix this thing. Here's how I think you ought to fix it. Here's the time frame I think you ought to fix it in. And you can do whatever you want. You're God, but I'm telling you, whatever you do better be better than the one I suggested. I'm just saying, you've given me the position of lead pastor. That means something, God. I don't really do that. But the hardest thing is to fulfill this line. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What Jesus means there is this, see, when God speaks to the angels, I don't know if you know this, but God has a heavenly counsel. Just like he has an earthly counsel, God doesn't need counsel. He doesn't need anybody to tell him what to do, but God rules in the spiritual realms through beings he created, just like he rules in the earthly realms through beings he created. We're told in scripture there is no king, no dictator, no leader on the face of the planet who doesn't have their job because God gave them the authority to have their job. Therefore, we are to be under their authority. We are to follow their lead. This would be true of governors, presidents, senators. This would be true of policemen. This would be true of teachers. This would be true of even pastors and elders and churches. The whole point is God has given some of his authority away, some of his responsibility away to others to lead. And he does it in the spiritual realm. And in the spiritual realm, angelic beings aren't like us. See, they were given one chance. The first turn of disobedience, like we see in angelic beings who are now what we would call demons or playing for the other side, they disobeyed once, they're done. There is no grace and mercy second chance. The blood of Jesus covers our sin. They have seen the majesty of God. There is no excuse for disobedience. So in heaven, everyone who's left obeys the heavenly Father. Oh, that it would be the same way on earth. Okay, quick question. Is there anything that you believe God has been calling you to do in your life and you just keep saying, no or not yet? Maybe God's asked you to forgive somebody and you keep saying, no, not yet. Maybe God's asked you to prioritize your life and cut some things out so you have more margin for other things and you keep saying, no, not yet. Maybe you feel God is calling you to be more generous with your time or with your money, and you keep saying, no, not yet. 
Maybe you believe God's called you into ministry or maybe to serve in a ministry at the church and you just keep saying, no, not yet. What if God has called you to be more patient with your spouse? You just keep saying, no, not yet. More engaged with your kids, more forgiving towards your parents. No, not yet. Oh, that it would be on earth like it is in heaven. Imagine Imagine a church filled with roughly 2,000 people from the youngest to the oldest. Instead of saying no, not yet, saying thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I will do your will and I will do it now, Father. But then notice the very next line. See, when I do God's will, good things come. So give us today our daily bread. This one's hard for us because we live in the wealthiest country perhaps the world has ever known. You and I, we don't even realize how wealthy we are. Most of us don't think we're wealthy because we know people who have way more money than us, so we think we're not wealthy. But I'm telling you, as somebody who's done mission trips and has traveled a little bit in the world, not even everywhere in the world, I'm telling you, we don't realize how wealthy we are. If you have one car, you're very wealthy. If you have two cars, you are among the wealthiest in the entire world. Now, there is something called suburban homelessness, and, and it's somewhere between 15%, I think it is, around 15% or so, in Hendricks County. Suburban homelessness means it's not that you're living on the street corner in a box. It means you're living in somebody else's basement, somebody else's bedroom, somebody else's home. Uh, it could be a parent, it could be a friend, it could be a neighbor, whatever it is. You're living in that kind of situation. That's in Hendricks County. There's like this massive number. I don't know the most recent statistic. If I'm off, forgive me. I keep thinking, man, if somebody would solve this, we could make a major dent in our community for the glory of God. So... Thing is, there may be some of you sitting here today and that's your story and this might actually really apply to you. But if you take yourself back to ancient days and in ancient days, if you were a father, you were the major provider. Women couldn't get a job, could hardly hold a business. There are exceptions in the Greco-Roman world. Even in the Bible, in the book of Acts, there's a lady named Lydia. She owns some sort of merchant business with purple cloth or whatever it is, purple dyes. But for the most part, women didn't have jobs and for the most part, women didn't own companies. It was the man's job. And most of them weren't business owners. It wasn't like here in America where anybody could start a business that has a little bit of startup funds. So you were contingent on finding somebody to hire you and to do a good job. Your prayer daily was, dear God, I've got all these little ankle biters running around and they're hungry. I need you to give me my daily bread because I don't know how I'm going to do it today. And God would show up over and over and over again. That's why we find in Matthew 5, Matthew 6, right around these same verses, Jesus even says to them, do not worry about what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will wear. Your heavenly father will provide all of these things for you. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. So powerful. So how are we as Americans to approach this part of the Father's prayer? Here's one of the things I do every day. I have an attitude of gratitude. So at every meal, at every prayer, I'm just thanking God for anything that I can think of that I see that he has blessed us with that day. We, God, we thank you today. The last couple days have been absolutely stunning. They've been beautiful, fantastic weather. Thank you, God. God, even when it was blazing hot the last week or so, God, we thank you. We thank you because we're alive and we get to enjoy that. And right now we're inside an air conditioning from a furnace that works. Thank you, Jesus. God, thank you today for taste buds to enjoy this watermelon and mac and cheese. Oh, God, thank you for mac and cheese. It's fast, it's quick, and it tastes great. Thank you, amen. I pray these prayers every meal and every night when I put my boys to bed. And sometimes I'll name my boys my name. And God, thank you for 
Levi, and I just name something about, thank you for the way you made him. Thank you for Matthias. Thank you for the way you made this about him. And I just want God to know that I have an attitude of gratitude because I realize everything I have came from him. See, if you don't have that perspective, then you think you worked hard and earned everything you got. So therefore, it's yours to do whatever you want with. But if you realize he gave you everything, then it's his kingdom come and his will be done. There's this passage, I think it's Deuteronomy 25, where uh, I may have said, I've said that three services now. I hope that's the right chapter. You don't go read it later. You're like, that's not in there. Um, anyway, but it's in Deuteronomy. And I remember God says to the Israelites, you know, they've been wandering 40 years in a desert. God says to them, did it never dawn on you? You've been walking 40 years in a desert and you never got holes in your shoes? Your clothes never wore out? Did it never dawn on you how that's possible? You're like, that's not possible. We have a very scientific, natural way of looking at the world. And God's saying, there's no way this adds up. If, if all of this is just, hey, you guys did a really good job, it should have fallen apart decades ago. I can relate. In 2014, my, my wife gave birth to our youngest, and uh, it was during a massive snowstorm, and I've told the story before, so forgive me for those of you who heard it, but uh, we went to the hospital, they kicked us out, sent us home. When we got home, we noticed it was a little bit cooler in the house. My mother-in-law was there watching our two uh, oldest boys, and uh, so we put a little, like a little space heater or whatever in the, in the middle of the room, and, and, and I had somebody come in a couple days later to install a humidifier in, in, our, in our furnace. We have a geothermal unit that came with the house. And uh, he goes out there and he cuts a big hole in the side of the furnace and he looks in and he goes, hey, how long has your furnace not been working? And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, how long has your furnace been not working? I said, I heard you the first time. I don't understand the question. He said, do you have heat in your house? I said, well, we noticed about two or three days ago that it got a little colder. And he said, what do you mean a little colder? I said, well, we put a little space heater in the the room and it's been holding steady at, I don't remember what it was, 68 degrees or 69 degrees or something. He goes, Come here, like get up on the ladder. He goes, see how that thing's not spinning? I said, yeah. He goes, that's your furnace. It's not working. He's like, are you telling me you haven't had a furnace for two or three days? And I said, I'm telling you 30 seconds ago, I found out my furnace wasn't working. That's all I know. And he said, that's not possible. I said, what do you mean it's not possible? He said, there's literally no way that little space heater could produce enough heat to maintain the heat in your home, especially in this intense weather. And I said, well, maybe for most people but it's good you don't know my God. Invited him to church. But then I went upstairs and said, I gotta go. Uh, I don't think I need the humidifier anymore, if you don't mind. Let's not install that. I don't know. My wife just gave birth to a baby. That's gonna cost me like 10 grand. I don't have another 10 grand for another geothermal unit. I gotta go knock on heaven's doors. So I went upstairs, locked myself in my room, got down on my knees, just said, God, I need you to do that thing you do that only you could do. Like, I, I, I need you to show up. I don't know how. And as soon as I finished praying, I just felt like God said, call your friend James Boyce with Vision House Realty. He pays me $100 every time I say that publicly. It's three services, James. I'm joking. He doesn't really. He doesn't really. Um, but I said, James, he's a good friend of mine. I said, James, I, I don't, you know anybody. I don't, I don't, I don't have another $10,000. I don't know what to do. And he said, you need to call this guy. And so I called this JC Hot or Not. I'll just drop his name because he was good to me, but he probably won't do for you what he did for the pastor. Uh, he doesn't go here. <laughs> Um, and he came over and took a look. He's like, yeah, that's bad news. He goes, this is an old unit. Everybody in your neighborhood's replacing these because they're old. They're just old. They're worn out. It's time to replace it. I said, I don't have $10,000. I don't know what to do. And he said, I'll tell you what. I just saw the other day, one of my buddies has your motor in his shop. It's just sitting there in case he would ever need it. Let me call him. And uh, he gave his buddy like chump change. He showed up and he fixed it for me for a few hundred dollars. And uh, it's been working to this day. A couple years ago, I had another problem. I called him up and said, hey, can you work that magic thing you do again? And he came over and he said, you realize I can't keep doing this forever. Sooner or later, you're gonna have to replace it. I'm like, but see, as long as I'm in the desert and God's keeping the holes from falling right happening, my shoes are still going, this baby's going. Like my house is cold right now. Thank you, Jesus. 
God's providing for my daily bread even when I don't know he's doing it. So what's my perspective to be? Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Everything I have. I don't need more. I just need to be content with all that you've given me. We're almost done, but now we're at the hardest part. Ready? All of that has been set up. Changing your perspective to focus on heaven, not on earth, so you know how to knock on heaven's doors, asking your heavenly Father to provide for your needs when you need it. But here we go. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The hardest part of the prayer is right here. Let's be honest. What the Bible teaches us consistently is we have racked up a debt so big with God that we literally couldn't pay it. Most of us don't realize that. We think because we're not homicidal or genocidal or suicidal or any other idols we could think of, that therefore um, our debt isn't that big. But the Bible says that God is infinitely good. He is perfect in all his ways. He's literally never sinned or been tempted to sin. It's not even a desire for him. But we have. So even all of our deceptions and little white lies and things that we do to cover up and make ourselves look good in front of others, he sees our heart and it hurts him because it hurts the relationships that we have with each other. God wants to be connected with us and he wants us to be connected with each other. Prayer is our time to come before a heavenly father and say, God, not just blanket, ah, Lord, I know I've done some things wrong, forgive me. No, to kneel in his presence and say, God, here's what I know I did. Here's what your spirit has convicted me of. I know I did this and I lied about it and I deceived about it or I hid it or I stole or I manipulated. I tried to control the situation. God, I am so sorry. Please forgive me. And here's what John tells us, First John, when we do that, he is faithful and will forgive us. But that's not the end of it. It's in that place when we realize the amount that we have accumulated in debt before him that he gives us the strength to go and give away that same mercy elsewhere. That's why right at the end of this prayer, the very next line <clears throat> that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 14, he says this, <clears throat> for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Wow, that's like smack you in your face. I really wish Jesus never said that. I think it was Thomas Jefferson who went through his Bible and cut out the parts of the Bible that he did not like. If I were going to do that, I might start here. Because I don't want that. Because what Jesus just told me is, hey, forgiveness for you is absolutely free but there's a small little thing I expect you to do, and that is to give away what I'm giving to you, mercy. And if you're not giving away, you probably don't understand your father's heart, which means you probably never really fully received it. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus goes further. He tells a story. He builds on this very idea. In Matthew 18, Jesus um, is approached by Peter, and Peter says, uh, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother and sister when they sin against me? Seven times? Peter thinks he's being generous. I mean, seven times, if somebody comes to you, like seven times in a day, that'd be a lot. Like, really, you keep doing the same thing? You want me to forgive you again and again and again? You deal with this with your spouse and kids, do you not? And Jesus looks at him and says, no, 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 not seven times, Peter. Seventy plus seven times, or 70 times seven times. We're not exactly sure what it means. 
I believe it's 70 times seven. If I'm wrong, it doesn't matter. It's a big number either way. Here's why, and I don't have time to go into this. I did this in a Revelation series you find online, but the number seven and the number 10 in the Bible are what we call complete numbers. They have symbolic meaning as well as literal meaning. So seven, when you see it, it's complete. Why did they walk around the, the walls of Jericho seven times? It's the number God told them to do. It was the complete number needed to fulfill the responsibility that God gave them. So when we see seven times 10 times seven, that would be 70 times seven, God is saying, Jesus is saying to Peter, I want you to forgive them completely. I don't care how many it takes. If you want to go even deeper into your Bible study, in Daniel, I think it's Daniel 9, the 70 weeks prophecies, we see Jesus is prophesied about 70 times 7. And if you do the math, you follow the prophecy from the dating of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to when Jesus comes. You can actually date it to the year of Jesus' baptism exactly 70 weeks. It's a profound prophecy pointing us to Jesus, and it's the very year that began his ministry, which would lead to our complete forgiveness. Do you see it? 70 times 7. I think what Jesus is saying in a very profound biblical way to Peter is, Peter, I want you to forgive completely in the way that I am God's complete forgiveness over you. So when do I stop forgiving? When the forgiveness is done. When it's completed. He goes on right after this. He says, now let me tell you a story. There's a master. He's a wealthy master. And he decides one day to call everybody to account to pay for their debts. And he has one particular servant who brings forward. And he owes him like 10,000 bags of gold. And he can't afford it. And he looks at the man. And he says, that's it. I'm going to throw you and your wife and your children into prison. Now, this is like indented servitude, which is fairly normal. And in Jewish culture, it was normal to the year of Jubilee. Then all debts are related. So we start over. But this could be passed to children, even to grandchildren, depending on how, you, how old you are how old they are when this all happened. If this was like year one, you got like 49 years to go to the year of Jubilee. You, this could be a long, paralyzing sentence for your family. And the man realizing that he's about to lose everything falls down and cries before the master, begging him, please, 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 just give me a chance. I will pay back every dime. It's impossible. He can't pay back every dime no matter what he does. And the master looks at him. He says, all right, I'll tell you what I'm gonna do. I'm having compassion on you. Instead of saying, I agree to the terms of your negotiation, instead he says, I will erase all of your debt. Okay, so realize, first of all, the servant did nothing to earn back what he owed. That's why when we come to Jesus, we don't come with anything in hand. We come empty-handed. I can't earn any of it. I don't deserve any of it. I'm here. All I got is the blood of Jesus. That's all I got. Is it enough? God says, yes. But then that same servant in the story of Matthew 18, he leaves that and he goes to one of his fellow servants, one of the same guys that either has been or will be called into the master's presence to give an account. And he says, hey, you owe me money. And the guy looks at him and says, I, I can't pay you right now. I'm trying to square things up with the, with the master right now. I, I don't know what it takes. And he says, you are gonna go to jail. And he goes to the magistrate, has him arrested and thrown in prison and says, until you can pay me back what you owe me, you gotta sit in jail. Well, can you ever pay someone back what you owe them when you're in jail? So the point is, he literally will not release him. There is no way this guy can get out of the debt. And the other servants hear about it, and they go back to the master, and they say, Master, you're never going to believe this. That guy that you erased his 10,000 bags of gold debt, he went to this other guy who owed him like nothing, and he had him thrown in jail. And then Jesus concludes with this in Matthew 18, verse 33. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured 
until he should pay back all he owed. And this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. I guess prayer really is about perspective, isn't it? Because if you don't understand the great debt that you and I accrue and our daily sins, then we can't give away the very mercy that God has given to us. But when I get into that quiet place, Jesus says in Matthew 6, right before he tells him how to pray, he says, you really want to get your father's attention, you go lock yourself away. You find a closet where nobody else can hear you and nobody else is around. Don't be like everybody else and you do it on Facebook. Don't stand out where everybody else could see. Don't when you get in your quiet time, oh, I gotta tell, share this one with everybody else. You just get with your father and only your father and you just tell him whatever you need. He already knows what you need before you even ask. Just put it all out there anyway. And you might have to say, God, help me. Because I need your forgiveness. I need to give your forgiveness and I don't. Change my heart, Father. And I'll close with this. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And this is a whole sermon right there, and that's why I put it last, and so I don't have time to deal with it, so God bless you, have a great week. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Let me give you 30 seconds. Does God ever tempt us? Whatever you said, you're right. Here's why. We have to flesh out what the Bible means with what it says. So we're told in the book of James that God cannot tempt us because God is not tempted. God is never tempted to do evil, so he doesn't tempt us to do evil. When we are tempted, we are led away by our own sinful desires that are taking root in us, and we feed them, and so they grow until they are full-blown. And when they're full-blown, they give birth to death. It's those initial desires in us that lead us into sinful temptation. And inside of us, while there is sin, we also have an enemy all around us. And he's influencing you, and he's influencing government systems, and the world, and everything around us to lead us into sin. This is why Jesus and Paul talk about the traps, the temptations that Satan will lay before us. And, the, and Paul says, we're not we're not oblivious to Satan's schemes. We know exactly how Satan works. We know exactly what he's up to. We're not crazy. We know exactly what he's doing. We can see the traps. What we tend to do is not avoid the traps. So does God ever tempt us? Not in a sinful way. Does God ever test us? Absolutely. In fact, even in Luke chapter four, we're told that the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tested. Now, when he's in the wilderness, he's fasting and he's praying. He's connecting with his heavenly father and he's tired and he's depleted and then the enemy comes along. So did God lead Jesus into sin? No, absolutely not. But did he allow the enemy to come in? Absolutely. Why? So that Jesus could find out. I didn't say this in any other service. I wish I'd said it this clearly. So that Jesus could find out what you and I find out and that is God will never fail us that even in his hardest, most painful, most difficult moment, God was there. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I believe it is, 10.3, I think, when you are tempted, God will always give you a way out so that you can stand up under it. Church, all you need to do is look for your way out. So what do we do with this verse? Well, I think we do two things. If you are in the middle of a temptation season, number one, you realize, I need to connect with God. God, help me. Give me the strength to stand under this right now. But number two, you were never made just to connect with God. This is an Our Father prayer. You made to reach out to another brother, another sister, and say, I'm feeling really tempted. That's why isolation destroys you. 
This is why 1 John, we're told to walk in the light as he is in the light. And when we do, we will have fellowship with one another. It was never intended to be a me connect with God thing. It was a me connect with we thing through prayer. And if I need to reach out, I reach out. So God, help me. Lead me not into temptation. And when I get there, give me the strength I need. Should the enemy decide to come calling from my name and I find myself in one of those moments I've walked into a trap, then God, give me the strength to stand up under it, the brotherhood, the sisterhood to surround me, that I don't have to live in it and fail and train wreck my family and train wreck my life and train wreck my church and train wreck my small group. God, help me. And that's a faithful prayer that God will honor every time. All right, so what do we do with this? Well, that was the intro to my sermon. Let's get real practical. I want everybody right now to take out your cell phone. I'm serious. Take out your cell phone. I got mine, and it's on airplane mode, so don't try to text me. I learned that the hard way when I was a youth pastor, and uh, everybody could see I, I had my phone on me. I don't remember like, what I had pulled it out or whatever, and they started texting me. They thought it'd be funny. Nobody's listening to my sermon. All right, got your phone out? I want you to go to the alarm or calendar, I don't care which one you use, whichever one is more efficient for you. And here's the challenge. I'm gonna challenge you to a 30-day prayer challenge. I want you to commit for the next 30 days, the next 30 days. You're gonna begin every day with prayer, and you're gonna end every day with prayer. And here's how it's gonna look, all right? So each week, we're gonna build on this. So if you're watching with us at home, welcome. We're glad you're here with us today. If you're watching this down the line, welcome. I don't care if it's two years from now and you're watching this, start the 30 days right now and go every week and watch another one of these, okay? We're gonna give you a little more every week. But here's what we're gonna do. You're gonna set an alarm right now on your phone for 15 minutes before you would normally wake up. So if you wake up at five, you're waking up at 4.45. You wake up at 7, you wake up at 6.45. You wake up at 10, we all hate you. But you're gonna wake up at 9.45. We all wish we could be you. It's a loving hate. Okay, just kidding. You're gonna wake up 15 minutes early, and it's not gonna be overly intense. It's just gonna be 15 devoted minutes with God. You know what it's not gonna be? You're not gonna check email. You're not gonna look at text messages. You're not gonna open up Facebook. If you get notifications, you're simply gonna turn off your alarm, and you're gonna immediately spend time with God. This is at coffee time. This is a whatever, you know, if you gotta go to the bathroom, whatever you gotta do, you'll figure it out. But... 15 dedicated minutes, 15 minutes at least every day for the next 30 days. 30 days. You can do anything for 30 days. This is not hard to do. 15 minutes. And you can use what I just taught you as an outline. God, we thank you. You are holy. We thank you that your name is powerful and precious. I thank you, Father, you're in heaven and I'm on earth. So align my heart to yours. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. God, here's the things I got going on today. Here's the things I need you to provide for. I need wisdom for this. I need you to show up in these ways. God, help me. Lord, here's my sins. Forgive me of my sins. I thank you for the blood of Jesus that washes me clean over and over and over again. But God, I need strength to forgive these people because I'm ticked right now about what they did to me. And God, would you not let me be led into temptation? I don't wanna fail you. I don't wanna be back here tomorrow telling you or asking you to forgive me the same things that I just confessed to you. 15 minutes and then in Jesus' name, amen. And then here's the thing you're gonna do. You're gonna do the same thing at night before bed. That means you're not gonna Facebook until you fall asleep. That means you're not gonna Netflix binge. And if you do, and it's 3 a.m., all right, you still gotta do 15 minutes. So you crawl up into their bed. You make it the last thing. I don't care where you go. You find a place where it's just you. If you're a husband, grab your wife's hand. Close the day praying with her. It's okay to do that. But what we aren't gonna do is let all of life's responsibilities push out our heavenly father. So here's what I wonder. What would happen? If there were a church with roughly 2,000 people who would commit 30 days with God, I wonder how the world would change. But I tell you what, there's only one way for us to find out. Join me.
Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the very, very practical words of Jesus that are so helpful and clarifying and encouraging and challenging all at the same time. God, uh, this message is gonna fall in a lot of different places, so may your spirit make some of it stick. For those who are struggling with a temptation, may this be a fuel that ignites their faith. God, for those in this room who maybe are struggling to forgive somebody who's hurt them, may this, God, be some extra grace and mercy in their life to build your kingdom and not their own. God, for those of us who are uh, flipping in our time with you and and maybe flipping the way we approach you or talk to you, God, may this be a a challenge and encouragement to honor you and hold you in, in respect. And Father, whatever it is, go with us over these next 30 days. Hear these prayers and meet us in this place. It's in the powerful name of Jesus we pray. And all God's people said, amen.